0: In today's fireside chat, I want to continue our discussion from last time. Previously, we had explored the history and legacy of appeasement. Today, we are going to explore his downfall and the rise of Winston Churchill. When we left Chamberlain last, he had told the House of Commons that he was uncertain what role he would play in the war. Within 8 months, on the 10th of May 1940, Neville Chamberlain would tell the nation
1: I sought an audience of the King this evening and tendered to him my resignation, which His Majesty has been pleased to accept. His Majesty has now entrusted to my friend and colleague, Mr. Winston Churchill, the task of forming a new administration on a national basis. And in this task, I have no doubt he will be successful.
0: In this chat, we will explore what happened over those 8 months, during the Phony War period. This period has often been neglected by historians, and it can feel like the rise of Churchill was inevitable. However, as we shall see, the downfall of Chamberlain and the rise of Churchill was not inevitable, and there were quite a few potential successes in May 1940. This chat cannot cover all aspects, or all details of the succession. For a very comprehensive account of events, I would thoroughly recommend Nicholas Shakespeare's Six Minutes in May. Initially, people had expected war to come to Britain very quickly in September 1939. The fear of a devastating bombing campaign was very real. As epitomised by Stanley Baldwin's speech in 1932, declaring the bomber will always get through. We also see that fear in H.G. Wells' The Shape of Things to Come, which predicted a world war breaking out in January 1940. In Wells' story, this was a war that would involve intense bombing, that would eventually end civilization. This fear meant that in September 1939, people were expecting hundreds of thousands of casualties in the first few days. Yet when the war broke out, these fears were not entirely realised. There was a period of a phony war between October 1939 and April 1940, during which there was little military action. The RAF dropped propaganda leaflets, but both sides were initially reticent to engage in a large-scale bombing campaign. The phony war suited Chamberlain and most of his colleagues well, who had little interest in escalating the conflict. Instead, they largely hoped that with enough time, a naval blockade would force social collapse in Germany. At first, there was little criticism of the government aside from a few frustrated voices in the newspapers. Until January 1940 that is, when the Secretary of State for War, Leslie Horbelisha, was dismissed from his post. Horbelitscher was a remarkably popular politician who was famous for always giving the press a good headline and he was famous for his transport reforms during the interwar period, which included the Belicia beacons that still exist today. However, due to a clash with the British High Command, he was dismissed from his position as Secretary of State for War, and a feeling of anti-Semitism among the establishment stopped Chamberlain from offering him the position of Minister of Information. Instead, Hall was offered a serious demotion, which he refused to accept, arguing that if he was ill-suited for the war cabinet, he was not then suited for any position in the government. The dismissal of Horbelicia was a major news story, with headlines claiming that Horbelicia had been sacrificed in one of the greatest scandals of the war. The Daily Express, the right-wing newspaper, went as far as asking if Horbelicia must go, do all the other members of the government deserve to stay? Although this episode has been dismissed by historians such as Paul Addison as a media sensation, it did seem to represent a real shift in the press's mood, which became increasingly critical of the British government and its inability to effectively prosecute the war. The press's frustration was reciprocated by the Prime Minister, who became progressively hostile towards what he called the vile press and its anonymous journalists. In early April 1940, Chamberlain still felt politically confident despite the frustrations in the press. He confided to his sister that luckily I am still in a strong enough position to treat them, the journalists, with the contempt they deserve. That hubris was also reflected in his public appearances when he infamously claimed that the lack of military activity during the phony war meant that Hitler had missed the bus. Within a week, Germany invaded Denmark and Norway in overwhelming force. Although British troops were sent to Norway in the hope of liberating it, the campaign was a major disaster for the British. From the outset, confusion had emerged over the reporting of the Norwegian campaign, and in early 1940 there were conflicting reports in the press. And snippets of news had created the false sense of victory, with newspapers publishing misinformed reports praising British military victories in Bergen and Narvik. When the truth was revealed, a sense of betrayal emerged in the press, which seemed to only add to a mood both within Parliament and outside that would result in the biggest political crisis of the war thus far—the failure led to the infamous Norway debate on the 7th and 8th of May 1940. Normally a parliamentary challenge would not threaten a Prime Minister with an overwhelming majority, but there was a pervasive feeling in the House that this disaster in Norway was evidence of the government's growing incompetence. Leo Amery, a conservative politician, famously led the charge against Chamberlain. As a journalist Amory knew how to make excoriating political attacks worthy of the front page. Quoting Oliver Cromwell, he told the government, You have sat too long here for any good you have been doing. Depart, I say, and let us have done with you. In the name of God, go. Chamberlain still seemed rather unperturbed, and with characteristic hubris, he dismissed Labour's call for a division with another ill-advised speech. I accept the challenge, he told the House. I welcome it indeed. At least we shall see who is with us and who is against us, and I call on my friend to support us in the lobby tonight. Chamberlain had fewer friends than he had realised once the votes were counted. Although the government technically won the vote by 81, it was a moral defeat that Chamberlain normally had a majority of 213. Still, Chamberlain remained eager to try to retain his post even after defeat. However, after it became clear that Labour would not serve under him in a coalition government, he finally decided to resign. But despite how events are often portrayed, Churchill was not everyone's first choice. Chamberlain himself preferred Lord Halifax, partly because Halifax was a fellow appeaser, but also because Churchill was seen as a divisive figure in the Conservative Party, known for being opportunistic. Other contenders for Prime Minister included Leo Amory and even Anthony Eden. Newspapers offered their own choices for successors. Some supported Halifax's ascension. Some suggestions in the papers, though, appear in hindsight slightly bizarre. The Daily Mail on the 10th of May came out in support of David Lloyd George, with its political correspondent asking, is Lloyd George too old at 77? The article claimed not arguing that Lloyd George has not lost any of the qualities that made him a brilliant First World War leader. Any youth and energy, the paper argued, could come from his war cabinet. In some ways, Churchill was picked out of luck. According to his own memoirs, during a private meeting with Chamberlain and Halifax, Halifax ruled out himself as a potential candidate because as a member of the House of Lords, he would only ever be a figurehead. Chamberlain had tried to dismiss Halifax's concerns by asking Churchill if he could see any reason why in these days a peer should not be a prime minister. The historian Jonathan Sneer has argued that this was a clever ploy to trap Churchill. If he agreed with Halifax, it would be clear he was just a self-promoter, trying to put himself in the top position. If he said no, Then it would be taken as a sign he supported Chamberlain's preferred successor. Churchill, very rarely for him, chose to say nothing, and the following day he was called to the palace by the King and asked to form his own government. When it became clear that Churchill was a successor, he was near unanimously received by the national newspapers as a man of destiny, but as we've seen very quickly, he was not always the first choice. On May 13th Churchill addressed the House of Commons for the first time as Prime Minister and made the following
1: speech. In this crisis I hope I may be pardoned if I do not address the House at any length today. I hope that any of my friends and colleagues or former colleagues who are affected by the political reconstruction will make all allowances for any lack of ceremony with which it has been necessary to act I would say to the house as I said to those who have joined the government I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears and sweat We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind we have before us many many long months of struggle and of suffering you ask what is our policy I will say it is to wage war by sea, land and air, with all our might and with all the strength that God can give us, to wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark and lamentable catalogue of human crime."
0: Churchill was aware when he gave that speech that he had little support among the conservatives, and thus he asked Chamberlain to remain in government. To be the Lord President of the Council, and Chamberlain would loyally serve the new Prime Minister, but ill health meant that this was a short lived appointment. The previous year, Chamberlain had told the House of Commons that whatever role he would play in the war, I trust that I may live to see the day when Hitlerism has been destroyed. He would not. Diagnosed with stomach cancer, Chamberlain would die on the 9th of November 1940. As seen then, the rise of Churchill was not as inevitable as we often think, nor was the downfall of Chamberlain. Although Churchill claimed that Chamberlain's struggle to avoid a war would stand him in good stead as far as what is called the verdict of history, this, as we saw last time, was not the case, partly because Churchill himself wrote that history. History will be kind to me, he said, for I intend to write it. The history he wrote was not kind to his predecessor. If you want to learn more about Chamberlain, I would strongly recommend reading the works of Frank Madonna and Ian Macleod. More recently, Jonathan Sneer has published a really thoroughly engaging account of Winston Churchill and his war cabinet. For any A-level students listening, Peter Neville's Neville Chamberlain, A Study in Failure remains a really engaging and useful account summarising his life quite succinctly and contains a series of good introductory exercises to explain some of the issues Chamberlain faced in his life. In the next History Fireside Chat we will challenge some of our interpretations of interwar Britain and explore the rise of consumerism and leisure during Britain's depressing years. History Fireside Chats are produced, recorded and researched by Dr Christopher Lovell.